Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, the chair of the committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the wonderful Steve Braunius in conversation with Tania Miller. The last time Steve Braunius attended the festival, he trolled through our op shops seeking record covers that might reveal insights into New Zealand's popular culture from 1957 to 1987, when the LP was the king of recorded music. We like to think a few of these made their way back to his latest book, which is called Cover Story, 100 Beautiful, Strange and Frankly Incredible New Zealand LP Covers. Steve discusses the interviews behind the book, and his own experience collecting more than 800 albums. Thanks to everyone who made the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival such a success. The 2023 event is being held from July 21 to 23, and more details will be available soon. For now, please enjoy Steve Braunius speaking to Tania Miller. Belinda, and I am enjoying a lovely Lawson's Pinot Noir. It's lovely, thank you. Um, kia ora, friends. Ehoa. It's so nice to see you. I'm not Jason Henry, sorry about that. Um, I am Tania, and it's good to see all of you here tonight. This is the, the final session of the, of the first proper day of the Marlborough Book Festival 2022, and it's been um, a busy day for all of us. Uh, I'm here with Steve Braunius, and Steve has written um, and collected uh, the images for this amazing book, Cover Story, and if you haven't already had a really good look at it out at the Paper Plus stall out in the foyer, um, I thought actually what would have been really good is if everyone had bought it first, and then during our talk, you could have been leafing through and looking at all the really wonderful... (laughs) We could take a five-minute break. Covers. Oh, well, I thought about that. I thought we could just sit here, enjoy our wine if you wanted to pop out. <laughs> but I'm sure you'll all want to rush out after the session and Steve will be um, available for signing. Um, I just want to say a quick thing um, as a librarian. It's really annoying because it's a really big, horrible <laughs> book to put on the shelf. It doesn't fit anywhere. <laughs> it's too wide and it's too fat. And it is that way because it's the exact size of a long player, so pretty amazing. I don't know how you got your, your publishing company to make this book like this, but you are, they must really like you, Steve. <laughs> they must have really believed in this, in this book, um, and I can see why, because it is, it's fabulous. I'll go to my notes now, sorry about that. Well, we've all seen them, the records that seem to be replicated in every op shop across Aotearoa. The ones at the back of the box or the wooden crate, beer crate. In my early years, it was beer crates always. They fit perfectly in a beer crate. Left behind when the good ones got snaffled up by some happy musicophile. And it happens really quickly. Like if you are an op shopper, you've got to be there at like, you know, 10 o'clock opening to get that really good LP. Otherwise, it's just the same old at the back of the box. My guest this evening, Steve Braunius, recognised the distinct character and beauty of those overlooked wallflower records. (laughs) Steve, one of New Zealand's best-known journalists and authors, saw the art of the New Zealand long-playing record cover as something to celebrate, and his collector's urge kicked in. Six years later, this is when he, from when he started collecting these, these records, and he's going to tell us the story of when he started in a minute, and 800 LPs later, and this book, cover story, just going to show you again, amazing book, was born. Steve, welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival 2022. Can you tell me a bit about that fateful day in 2015? Uh, yeah, I, I can, and uh, thanks so much for filling in at such short notice. But that's the flexibility of an adult librarian, isn't it? Someone said yesterday, <laughs> oh, well, have you had a, a promotion? <laughs> hey, uh, Marius, can you uh, slow down the, uh, the covers? Can, can we linger on them a little bit 
if, if, if that's possible, if that's possible. Um, yeah, it, it, it started um, this craze which nearly um, ruined me. <laughs> Uh, started on, uh, I think it was Christmas Eve. Yes, it was Christmas Eve. I was at a local, uh, I was at my happy place, which was a shopping mall. And um, so was all of Auckland. <laughs> and I needed to get out, I needed to get some fresh air, but not too much fresh, fresh air. I still wanted to go shopping. So I went to a local Salvation Army op shop. And uh, that was just as full as the shopping mall, uh, which was quite a, a tragic sort of comment on, uh, on uh, the lower socioeconomic classes of West Auckland, where this was. And so they were all shopping like mad. And I thought, yeah, I want to go shopping too. Uh, I'll have a look at some records, just for something to do. And I was just flipping through some records, and um, I came across uh, two or three really striking album covers, and they were plainly by New Zealand artists. And I was chortling to myself about how amusing they were. And as I kept flipping through, I kept finding more and more that were, if not amusing, definitely striking, sometimes really beautiful, sometimes manic, sometimes sad, sometimes tragic, um, sometimes artful, and it was just one after another. And I think by about the 10th or 11th example of this, I, I thought, that's my next book. Little did I know it would take five years. Uh, and so, yeah, I thought uh, I want to do a book showing New Zealand album covers, because it would be a beautiful pictorial record it's a coffee table book, 12 inches by 12 inches, exactly the size of an LP. And I thought the first thing to do is to, um, is to collect. Uh, a good synonym for collect is to hoard. <laughs> so I became a hoarder very quickly. Uh, and uh, as a... Uh, as an author, uh, I'm very lucky in being sort of sent around the country to literary festivals like this. And I kid you not, by the way, uh, Blenheim, and I think I've been, to, I've been to everyone except the one in Blackball. I don't know why they haven't invited me to Blackball. But uh, of all of them, uh, I've been here twice before, and this is the best. This is actually the best. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's just the vibe of it. It's really great. It's really welcoming and friendly. Um, and yeah, so going to all these, these festivals is really just an excuse for me to uh, ask someone uh, who lived locally, like Jim, to take me around every single op shop, junk shop, antique shop. And that's what Jim and I did last time I was here. And I just added to the collection and I would go back to my home laden down with um, not just uh, New Zealand albums, but what was fast becoming a unique collection of some of the worst artwork ever created. <laughs> and indeed, uh, there should basically be kind of a warning sticker on the cover of this book, do not play these records. Uh, as bad as many of the covers were, the music was so much worse. <laughs> but this just added to the charm, and um, it wasn't just a sort of a case of, of, of comedy, really. Um, there needs to be something deeper for comedy to work, I think. Uh, some sort of sense of poignancy, some kind of social comment. And I did get a very, very... Uh, deep sense, I think, of um, New Zealand society and the way we tried to go about things in the years that this book covers. And it basically, it's a very neat little time uh, capsule that goes from 1957, 
which is when they made the first New Zealand album here in sort of typically uh, New Zealand circumstances. Uh, they, uh, there was a band in Auckland. They took them down to the uh, Auckland domain for the photo shoot and uh, the band leader said, oh, actually uh, three of the band can't make it. And so they just called out to a few passers-by. <laughs> They're on the album cover. People they don't even know, not let alone musicians. Ridiculous. <laughs> so that was in 1957, and it goes from 57 to 87, which is when the last record pressing plant uh, was destroyed uh, in, in New Zealand. So we didn't make records here any longer. So it was a, a neat little 30-year um, capsule. And so, yeah, what this book is, is that it does tell a kind of a, um, a social history of this place. Um, and it's, it's really the years in which we um, used to think, we're not really allowed to think this anymore, but we used to think of New Zealand uh, as a cultural desert. Remember how we all used to sort of just assume it that we were useless at everything, happy, uh, up for it, but pathetic. <laughs> and these are the pathetic years. Um, but even within that, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of glory. There's a lot of sense of adventure, um, and indeed uh, a lot of poignancy. Um, it's more than just a pictorial record. I've interviewed a number of people who either uh, made the records or made the record covers. And, um, you know, as, as a journalist, one of the things that you quickly realise is that people in New Zealand like to talk. They like to tell stories. And it was never a matter uh, in this book of trying to coerce or persuade someone to, to talk. People just delighted to, and in fact, this is one of the, the happiest sort of experiences I've had as an author or a journalist, and as much the people I met were just uniformly incredibly nice, uh, very sharing, uh, very generous with their time, and, and also, um, you know, what a, what a pleasure and an honour it was to meet some of these sort of major figures of the cultural desert. Uh, I became quite good friends with Max Cryer, who died just before the book came out. <sighs> Poor old Max, died in uh, very mysterious circumstances, which was appropriate for his, the mysterious way he led his life in total secrecy. And um, yeah, a whole bunch of people, and I knew that it was a, a case of a, a race against time. Uh, another thing you learn as a journalist and indeed as a human being is that old people die and you've got to talk to them before they do die. And so this is really a book of the dead. A number of people who have been interviewed um, died sometimes weeks, months after the interviews. There's Max Cryer. Uh, very movingly, uh, I interviewed uh, Peter Poser, the great guitar player. Uh, he lived on the outskirts of Te Awamutu in a very gothic scenario. Uh, he'd suffered terrible strokes and this very nimble and fluent guitar player had crippling arthritis in his hands and could no longer even touch a guitar. Um, and yeah, uh, you just had to like go real fast to get them before they died. And they were all such fabulous storytellers because they were doing something that they loved. Music is, um, music is something which doesn't just make listeners happy. It makes the performers real happy. It gives them a sense of purpose, even if they're creating absolute junk. <laughs> How did those records get made? You know, like I look at some of those records, I, say, I mean, I see them in op shops, but where would they have originally been sold? Like at the gigs or um, just well, through were, stores, they, they stores? Were, 
Well, this is the thing, you know, going to... I mean, what is, it, what is an op shop, really, but a museum uh, where everything costs 50 cents? It's They're the 50 $2 c- now. They're $2 for an LP. <laughs> Outrageous. Do you think so? Uh, this book should, really should have been called The 50 Cent Shop. Uh, and, you know, 800 records times 50 cents, it adds up. Uh, well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, op shops are a, are, 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 are a museum, and a museum is a record of things which we once possessed, and indeed cherished and loved. Uh, a number of these records were huge sellers. That one is huge. We just saw Kiri Takana's first album. That's one of the biggest selling albums of all time, uh, that one with Whiskey, uh, her dog on the cover. And... Um, and so that became an experience too, that you were going throughout the whole country to literary festivals, or I'd come up with some threadbare excuse to interview somebody in Clutha, because I'd heard there was a good op shop there. <laughs> and, and so the paper would send me to Clutha. Um, you'd go to all these op shops all around the country, and it was a tender experience because you were dealing with things which were once deeply loved. You know, they weren't sort of they have a kind of a different quality, to say, to clothes, which, of course, we love, too. I'm not demeaning clothes, but music has a... Has a um, well, it's such a primal thing, isn't it? You know, it gives us such sort of pleasure, gives us such company, um, hope. Um, it has qualities of love in it, and... Um, yeah, the fact that these were, I mean, look at that one, you know, that's one of the biggest, again, biggest selling records ever made here. And you think of all, the reason I would find this in every op shop the length of the country is that they used to be in homes. And they used to be in homes because people went out by the tens of thousands to buy them because they absolutely loved them. And, you know, these are um, very important, rich artefacts of that cultural desert. That's a cactus in the desert. It's a cactus flower. It's a desert flower. And most of them, do you think most of them are one hit wonders? Like, do you think they had follow-up records? Beg your pardon? Most of these records in here, these covers, do you think they had follow-ups or were they one hits, you know, one hit wonders? Um, Oh, there were some made by um, artists who were really prolific, I suppose. Um, And then, yeah, there there were some uh, complete one-offs. There's... um, (laughs) A haunting one that I saw just behind me not too long ago. It's a, a live album recorded at some uh, sleazy Wellington hotel, uh, the Travelodge. And, and the cover is uh, a really bad photograph of the Travelodge at night. And um, all, the, all the rooms are illuminated. And in like the seventh floor, you can see this sinister silhouette of someone staring out. It's like a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, it's Midge Marsden, and that's a cover by uh, Bill Hammond, the great painter. So towards the end of the book, uh, there's a section devoted to um, uh, great New Zealand artists. Um, yeah, uh, the great Bill Hammond, who uh, was a harmonica player. Uh, and the one that we just saw before that, um, uh, Strata, uh, can you go back to that one, Marius? Uh, I could try and find it. I said oh, to... Uh, go forward again, sorry. <laughs> Should be the next one. Yeah, this one. Um, does anyone recognise that? Do you know where that is? Can I can I can I see a hand if anyone? White Island. Yeah, it's White Island. That is uh, almost exactly where the tragedy happened. You can see, sort of in the distance, there's a flat line. That's the sea. And remember the uh, shockingly resonant photograph during the explosion of the collapsed helicopter. What a terrible sort of image that is of that helicopter, which looks terribly tender and collapsible, just as the one that 
was destroyed in the tragedy is. And um, yeah, that's a soundtrack album uh, of a movie directed by this chap called Jeff Stephen. And I tracked him down uh, to ask him about the photograph that he took of White Island. And I said, um, what to you makes that album cover? And he said, oh, it's the, the vulnerability of the helicopter. Uh, he's quite, a, quite an artist, Jeff Stephen. Uh, it's a beautiful album too. It's a jazz record by Mike Nock. Um, yeah, um, I find myself quite shocked to say that that's a beautiful album. There is some quite nice music in the book. I'm going to look out for it. Pardon? I'm going to look out for it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, a, and the movie called Strata. um, However, that's another sort of prime example of junk made in the cultural uh, cultural desert. It's an art film which makes absolutely no sense. Do you remember how we used to do that? We used to make movies which made absolutely no sense but made you think, hmm, hmm. <laughs> and so you listened to them. Did you listen to most of them? I did, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, when I say listen to them, um, <laughs> I didn't listen to all of them. Uh, there's a number of albums in the book which uh, feature the... Uh, feature the... Uh, one of the most wretched instruments ever created. And I am, of course, talking about the accordion. <laughs> the devil's lungs. <laughs> and uh, there are a number of albums, and, and they're just unlistenable, really. And, and, but yeah, the, the local sort of angle here is that a number of these albums were made by, um, were made by a Blenheim legend called Alan Gardner, Anyone from Alan's family? Yeah. <laughs> Devil's lungs comment was just a silly throwaway. Um, uh, yeah, uh, and, and yeah, they, they were they were purely um, unlistenable. What about the organs? What about the? Is it Richard? Actually, really good. Richard, yeah, is it Richard yeah. Hall? Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Um, they had terrible covers. Uh, uh, <laughs> one of, one of the sort of uh, consistent themes you found in the uh, cultural desert of that 30 years is that New Zealanders were real suckers for instrumental albums. What was that about? You know, just guitars or just an organ or just the wretched accordion. No one singing, no words. What was that? Is this some sort of comment on our laconic reputation as people of few words? In fact, no words. You know, we didn't like, we didn't like the human voice. For, there's one. Uh, Sean at Wairaki. Um, <laughs> ast- astonishing guy, really astonishing. He's a, he's, a, he's a blind piano player. He was a complete Lothario. Uh, he's been playing uh, resident piano player at the James Cook Hotel in Wellington for the past 36 years. And, uh, yeah. Uh, there's another... Uh, another um, New Zealand Motel. Uh, I really chosen that one for the beautiful uh, ironwork. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I, I can see a lot of records that were in my parents' collection growing up, and um, I wonder if there are records that were in your house like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, my, my mum and dad were. Um, Grew up in Mount, we grew up in Mount Maunganui, and uh, they loved a party, um, a lot of parties, and uh, all the music, of course, was played on record players. This is pre-tape decks, 20 years before CDs and so forth. And yeah, they, I, I have distinct memories of um, feeling kind of baffled as a kid. Um, peeking through the, 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 the door and, and, or, or listening through the door at uh, one instrumental album after another and feeling kind of baffled that no one was saying anything on these records. And what did this mean? Maybe that's why I'm such a chatterbox. I'm trying to fill in for the silence of my childhood. <laughs> Ridiculous. 
But your brother's a musician. Were you a musician as well? No, no, can't play. You're not no, a no, no. I, uh, I tried, tried playing the guitar when I was about 16, and my mum walked past and said, Don't be so bloody stupid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but your brother is a musician? Because uh, yes. I think you mentioned him in the book. Is he in, was he in one of the records? That yeah, you he's, he's, he's on one of the albums. Yeah, my brother Trevor is a, a really gifted uh, jazz guitar player. And uh, he, features on a, uh, <laughs> he features on an extraordinary album made by the Otomaitai School College Choir. <laughs> and uh, they do a, a choral version of Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan. <laughs> And uh, I, I had a terrific uh, hour, uh, I think it was earlier this year, where uh, I was a guest on Kim Hill's show. And the producer said, look, you know, can you bring in maybe seven or eight songs? And I thought, oh, this is a fantastic opportunity to uh, torture Kim. <laughs> And boy, did I torture her. It was hilarious. She just, two or three times, she just shouted, oh, that's enough, and, and stopped the record dead in its tracks. Um, <laughs> she, I, I think the, the choral version of Hurdy Gurdy Man was the last straw uh, for Kim. It's a real enjoyable hour. She's, you know, she's absolutely wonderful and terrific. And uh, we used to... Uh, we used to collaborate on a, on a thing when I was at the Lister magazine where every year we would um, hold a, a poetry competition via the Listener and National Radio. And Kim and I uh, were the judges along with, we'd often have a guest judge. I think Kate Camp, who's at the festival, was, was, was um, a guest at one time and used to go around to her house in Brooklyn and go through like hundreds of poems and um, smoke like trains. Terrific fun. What Good a, old what, days. A, what a, what a, what a, yeah. I mean, you know, she's kind of a recording genius in her own right, don't you think? She's like a great vocalist. Every syllable is just, you lean closer to listen to. Amazing. <laughs> Look at the threat of that title. <laughs> and so over the time, <laughs> that you collected these albums. It, it must have kind of taken over your life, did it, in a way? Um, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it really did. And, um, you know, I just kept collecting, really, and uh, I sort of gave, hope, gave up hope of turning it into a book. I was just drowning in records, and I didn't know what to do, and um, I became quite close friends... Um, <laughs> Um, with a chap called uh, Sir Bob Harvey, um, man who invented Norman Kirk, among other things. And uh, he would come around quite a bit, and he'd always bring over more... He'd, he'd bring albums over as well that he'd found in op shops, which I always had, but it was so nice for him to do so. And he'd say, you know, when are you going to do this book? When are you going to do this book? So, oh, oh, drowning under the weight of 800 albums, Bob, and... He basically staged an intervention and um, said, right, I'm going to take care of it and uh, tracked down a uh, publisher who was a friend of his and said, Steve Brawnies wants to do a book of 100 of the worst albums ever made in this country. And the guy said, oh, that's gold. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Oh, that's, uh, see that chap uh, second on the uh, left wearing a, a towel? Uh, it's Russell Crowe. back when he was called Russell Rock. Uh, Does he play on the album? Pardon? Does he play on the album? Yes, very badly. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it such a struggle for musicians and authors and creative people in this country, you know, like to make a living? Um, yeah, yeah, it certainly can be. Um, you kind of have to have a day job, right? I, I, I'm trying to think of... Um, I mean, this is another sort of poignant theme, actually, that you've 
reminded me of, really, uh, of all the uh, interviews. Um, that's Alan Gardner of Blenheim, <laughs> with the most mysterious album cover in the history of New Zealand music. Is the balloon choreography deliberate, or is that just an accident? What do the good people of Blenheim think? Is this Blenheim humour? What the hell is wrong with you? It's, it's got to be an accident, right? I think she's playing it. Sure. She's playing it. <laughs> it's the Otomaito College Choir. Um, I don't know, he, he doesn't really have like a, a devilish smile on him. And obviously the women are completely innocent as to what's going on. Uh, but yeah, hell of a cover. Um, sorry, but uh, sorry, uh, but yeah, a poignant, a poignant theme that you've reminded me of throughout the interviews for this book is that I wouldn't have talked to anybody um, who was doing particularly well uh, in life. You know, you're right. It is a hard road um, being a musician or, or a creative, unless you know um, something wonderful happens, like like uh, to Lord. But mm. that's that's not common, is it? Jason asked me to ask you about your interview with John Hall Grinnell. Oh, John Hall, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, that was moving. Um, he's in a retirement village in Rangiora, the great country musician, John Hall, great yodeler, one of the biggest selling uh, recording artists we've ever had, 30, 40, 50,000 sales of his albums and um, yeah he uh, he has uh, dementia and yet it's a kind of a, a, a low-flying form of it and of course I cleared it with his daughter but she said nah phone him up he'll love it and yeah so um, that's the only interview I've ever conducted with somebody who's suffering from dementia and he was pretty good, actually. It was, it was, it was really moving. He, um, I don't know if you can remember what John Hall sounds like, this beautiful tombra. And he sounded exactly like himself. And that was nice. Um, yeah, super interesting guy, actually. That, I mean, so many of these people have had, like, they may not have, like, become terribly affluent, but they've had... Oh, there, there's the Alfred Hitchcock one. <laughs> you see a shape there in the second uh, to top uh, uh, window. Some sort of axe maniac, possibly. <laughs> what a terrible photo. I mean, what were they thinking? It's just junk. <laughs> Delighted to find that one. Um, yeah, but they've, they, you know, they may not have uh, done very well um, in wealth, but um, had really interesting lives, lively, um, romantically lively in many cases, um, but also with a, a real core of decency. There's a real sort of core of New Zealand decency, which I think runs throughout this book. Um, I had an interesting comment on it. Uh, I'm quite good friends with um, a musician called Shane Carter. Uh, I had lunch with him uh, yesterday. It was his birthday. And... Uh, I, he said, oh, uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, oh, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to Blenheim for the Literary Festival, the Books Festival. And he said, oh, New Zealand's best books festival. There you go. But anyway, Shane read the book, and um, he, uh, he's got a really... Um, his mind is f full of insights all the time. And his comment on the book was um, really touching, actually. He said, um, he said that, you know, because he's a musician. He's had a hard life trying to make ends meet and all this kind of thing. And he's devoted himself to his art at the expense of, you know, a steady income. He's been really committed and devoted to it, like a calling. And he, um, <coughs> he said that um, <coughs> he thought it was a really poignant book that it was full of uh, people who were in it for one reason and one reason only, and that was to make music. And I loved the way that he um, interpreted that by reading this book. 
I thought that was really, really interesting. Mm. It's noble in a way. Noble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's a, it's yeah, there's a, such a nobility to um, to entertaining people. You know, uh, the need to do it and remain a decent human being. You know. Um, do you think you can say that for modern like musicians? Oh, wouldn't have for a most clue. Mod- <laughs> wouldn't have a clue. We're talking about the 50s, 60s and 70s now. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, Shane's a very decent person. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but do you think people get in, into the business for other reasons other than... No, I think they get into it out of love. Mm. Uh, very similar to... Um, very similar to writing. I can speak for myself, yeah. Because why ask? Would you do Hall. it? You don't really do it for the money, I suppose. Another, another great mystery. No one knows who created this uh, spectacular painting on Hessian. You can tell it's on Hessian. And, uh, yeah, John himself uh, didn't have the foggiest, which is not a comment on his dementia. He just plain forgot kind of thing. But, yeah, hell of a striking cover. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's Garth Young, to whom I co-dedicated the book. I became really close friends with um, Garth. He lives in the Cook Islands, and he produced more number one hits than anyone in New Zealand uh, during that 30-year cultural desert. Uh, he was like a genius uh, producer. <clears throat> this is another instrumental album, which he's made with Jack Thompson from Invercargill, uh, Jack had his priorities. Uh, during the recording of that album, uh, he would look at his watch, stop playing, and say, I'm just going to the TAB. <laughs> Jason also asked me to ask you about Ray Columbus, visiting Ray Columbus. Oh, yeah. He said it was a pretty good day, wasn't it? <laughs> That's his words. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, with your uh, forbearance, I'll, I'll read my chapter on uh, Ray Columbus. Uh, it's for an album he uh, recorded. It's a sort of a greatest hits. It's called uh, Hit Tracks. I'm not sure if you can pick up the very subtle pun there. <laughs> and he's at a railway station looking, as he always did, very cool. Um, Ray Columbus remembered turning up at the train station at Waimauku, where he posed for his Puntastic Hits, Hit Tracks album in 1968. Just as he was able to instantly and very often at length, in detail and with insight, answer all my questions when I visit him at his home in Snell's Beach in March 2016. And for those three lively hours, all his wife Linda and his close friend Grant could do was shake their heads <clears throat> in wonder. He hadn't really said much more than yes or no for years. Linda explained that they were in a major car accident and since then he had had 13 mini strokes, two major strokes, one heart attack, pneumonia and an autoimmune disease which destroyed his kidneys. His heart was at 40% and his lungs were very bad. Every morning we wake up and I say to Ray, are you still alive? And he says, yes. There were white orchids in a tall glass vase on the dining room table. I was expecting an invalid, a small, vague, feeble version of Ray Columbus. By rights, he should have been dead, gasping his pained, pitiful last at least three years previously when newspapers ran with the morbid headline, Family Gather at Singer's Bedside. But he looked great. He looked exactly like himself, the one and only Ray Columbus, a lifetime of fame glowing on his face. When I showed up at, this, at his door, he looked at me and said, I remember you. I told him we had never met, but he smiled and said, you might be wrong about that. <laughs> he later said that we'd known each other in a past life. He believed in all that sort of thing and the sight of me triggered some strange neurological impulse that made him chatty, able to put his thoughts into language, 
and he gave a wonderful interview about his life and times as a legendary figure in New Zealand music. There were antique luggage trunks beneath the glass table. The house was immaculate. They had moved to their seaside home at Snell's, downsizing from their seven hectares spread with passion fruit vines in Matakana, and Linda had managed to find room for about 30 enormous flowering pots in the small garden. She said, today is a very good day, extremely good. I haven't seen Ray like this since she couldn't remember when she'd last seen him like this. She turned to face him. I haven't heard you and seen you like this in so long. She looked at him with love. He looked back at her with love. He was so funny and alert, and there was a strange bright light in his eyes. When I left, he went back inside the house, and he couldn't even remember that he'd had a visitor. Dear Ray, he died in November that year. Bizarre. He was convinced that, uh, that we'd met, and the strange thing is, I sort of became convinced too. It was really, it was really touching. He was such a lovely man, and uh, but yeah, the wife and the friend were just shaking their heads for three hours. Just couldn't believe it. He hadn't said. I don't think he'd even said no because all she ever said to him was, "Are you alive?" And he'd go, "Yes." I guess finally one day he said no, and he died. <laughs> but yeah, extraordinary. He just he just wound himself up and talked and talked and talked intelligently, wittily. And then he lapsed, and then he retreated back into the darkness of silence in the sort of coma that he was in. Did you try and visit most of the people that you talk about? Or did you talk to them on the phone? Or Oh, visit, yeah. Because you used it yeah, as an yeah, excuse to yeah, go up yeah, shopping, Yeah, no, right? no phone calls. Yeah. You used it as an excuse, right, to yes, go up exactly. shopping? Yes, <laughs> exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. So can you tell us where, which op shops in New Zealand have the best LPs? No. <laughs> they never tell secrets. I will never tell. Secrets. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it changes from day to day too, you know. Have um, you been to the Blue Door today? <laughs> no, no, no. The, um, fantastic record. Christian family called the Pink Family. That's their surname, the Pinks. Uh, very close friends with um, another Christian family growing up in Auckland at the time called the Bridges, that is Simon Bridges. Simon Bridges <laughs> and the Pinks were best friends. And um, yeah, uh, the, the, the chap with the uh, afro on the far right is now the uh, head of the DHB in Canterbury, Dr. Raymond Pink, a good singer too. <laughs> <laughs> He had Jesus in his heart. Hi, I'm Kate DeGoldie. I'm a writer and a publisher and a reader. Awesome. And what do you think of our Marlborough Book Festival? Well, it's one of the great festivals in the Southern Hemisphere because it is so carefully thought through. It has superb content, very carefully curated collection of writers and presenters. And then... It looks after everyone at the festival, writers and the participants and the audiences so beautifully. Wine is very present, which is of course wonderful, but um, everyone stays in the most beautiful surroundings and are looked after, every need is looked after. And then there's just the communion of writers and, and the communion of writers with their audiences. I've had such good conversations with people after um, various um, presentations. So it's, um, it's, it's an absolutely top happening for me, yeah. So Cover Story is as much about New Zealand's fledgling music industry as it is about its covers. And there was a time when record labels were popping up all over the country. Stebbing? Viking Records? Mm -hmm. EMI? Music, sorry, EMI Music. Tell me about Music World and its founder, Horton Hughes. <coughs> yeah, Horton Hughes. Um, 
Houghton. <laughs> well, you know, uh, New Zealand has a, a very sort of rich history of uh, crooks. And Houghton was uh, a leading crook in the New Zealand music business. He set up a record label called Music World in Christchurch. And he, uh, was, he released albums very, very prolifically and very, very cheaply. They were almost all recorded in one take in a very cheap Christchurch recording studio. He did have sort of genuine passions for, um, for some music. Uh, he recorded, on the other hand, he recorded a number of accordion records. And I said, what did you think of those? He said, terrible, unlistenable. But they made him quite rich. Um, he did have some claims to, to uh, creative fame. He discovered Suzanne Prentice. And I interviewed Suzanne about the debut album that she made for him when she was 14 and um, asked her about that. And she said that she had very strong memories of um, <coughs> singing the last track for the album with her purse at her feet, ready at the very last syllable of that song to pick it up and run to the airport to catch the plane back to Invercargill. <laughs> uh, yeah, they did it in two hours, I think, that album. <laughs> Jason also asks, that do you think that possibly the most recognised cover in this book would have to be the Loxane Golden Discs? We've already kind of talked about it. That really psychedelic-looking one. Oh, the yeah, pink and yeah. Yeah, there are, there, there are um, you know, um, albums which, uh, because they were so popular and they printed so many and they ended up in so many homes, they become part of the sort of the, the fabric of, of New Zealand social history, sort of like um, tea towels in a way. Uh, the Lee Grant cover, which some of you would have seen before, the Kiri Takano album cover with her dog, Whiskey, and, yeah, the Loxene Golden Disc record of 1971 um, were, were, were uh, iconic, and I really sort of needed to have them in the book, you know. On the other hand, uh, I uh, very deliberately excluded things which were like... They weren't iconic, they were just too obvious. Um, there was nothing about... Um, split ends or crowded house. I mean, the terrible thing is really is that um, sort of standard narratives of, of New Zealand music history, I find just really boring. I don't want to read another fucking word about Neil Finn. <laughs> I just don't, ever. He can shut the fuck up. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I'd much rather hear about a living circle. <laughs> Were they copyrighted? Or did you have to worry about copyright with your... Uh, no, no, I got hold of um, all the record companies and um, struck a very good deal. Uh, most of them were like, fine, have it for nothing. And uh, I remember one company um, dared to ask for $50 and I wrote this <laughs> coruscating email to them tearing strips of them. What the hell are you playing at? You know, you're the man. And, 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 and you know, you're stomping my creative freedom. How dare you? I saw the email recently, about three months ago. I just couldn't believe I'd had the gall to send it. Anyway, they backed down and they gave me 50 bucks. <laughs> Are there still records out there for you? To collect? Yeah. Oh. Have you still got them on your list? I don't really. Um, uh, I don't really. Uh, one thing I did actually is that I collected uh, multiple copies of some particular albums. I've got 20 of those. If you, <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You know, they might all come in handy. Um, but no, it's it's... It's kind of finished. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, the cover of the book uh, features um, uh, underneath the subtitle here, 
volume one. <laughs> that's, that's intended as a threat. It's a promise. Yeah, I'd actually quite like, if I did do another volume, I mean, you know, I've got another 700 albums to go through. Uh, uh, I'm sort of tempted to see if I could make an entire book of album covers of uh, Christian music. Uh, Christians made really crazy uh, album covers um, all the time, you know, all the time. The, the, the evangelicals in, particu in particular. So Brendan Dugan modelling a terrific Argyle sweater there. There's some great knitwear, fabulous knitwear yeah, in a lot of these. <laughs> truly bad album. Look at the vest. Nice guy, he's a, he's a tour bus operator in uh, Tauranga now. Yeah. Very nice fellow. How do you store them? Where do they all live? Oh, uh, they're in immaculate condition in my damp shed. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they're, 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 I, I bought um, some, uh, you know, furniture partic uh, uh, for that particular purpose to store them. Um, and, you know, go in occasionally and have a look, take them out, play them. Um, it's kind of a nostalgia for a, um, it's nostalgia for a book about nostalgia in a strange way. Yeah. There's five really, uh, five generally, generally very happy years of um, collecting junk and finding beauty and poignancy in it. Have you really stopped that now? That's, that's the worst photoshopping you've seen in your life. No way he's in the snow. <laughs> crazy, isn't it? <laughs> and have you stopped, Steve, or are you just collecting Christian have LPs? I watched that? Are you, have you really stopped, or are you just collecting Christian LPs now? See my stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just conscious of the time... Um, and I would like to open the floor for some questions. So does anybody, while I find my thing. Sir. Thank you. Um, well, thanks for the talk first. Uh, you're talking about talking to Ray Columbus and the big interview you had with him. I'm sure there's lots of others. And they sound like really important memori memorials. I was wondering if you're doing anything with those interviews. If I had... Do, any plans for the interviews themselves? Like, kept them? Well, you know, publishing them, writing something from them. Uh, they're throughout the book. They're okay. In... They're throughout the book, yeah, if that's what you mean, yeah. yeah, well, it, yeah. Sound, it sounded like there wasn't very much from Mr Columbus, that's all. Um, yeah, they're, they're pretty condensed, actually, yeah, that's true. Uh, I think the word count of the entire book was, um, it's, not, it's not that long, it's maybe 10, 20,000 20, words. Um, yeah, uh, I deliberately wanted to sort of um, make them quite brief. Uh, the concept I had in mind, which uh, is going to sound fantastically pompous to you, is that uh, they were a counterpoint to the albums. The text, in my mind, conceptually, were like singles. <laughs> Quick little 45s, over in three minutes. So clever. What a concept. Steve, uh, hey. I'm just wondering if you can recall the album covers that you walked out on that very first collection that you did. Do you know what they are? The, the Christmas Eve 2015. What, what, were the, the what were the albums? Oh, uh, the very first one. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, oh, inevitably uh, would have been... Um, possibly two or three by the same guy, Jack Thompson, the piano player of Invercargill, who would interrupt his recording sessions to go to the TAB. Um, and uh, <coughs> I did quite a lot of interviews about Jack. He'd passed away uh, before I did the, was able to do the interviews. And um, he was an interesting guy. He... Uh, he lived alone. He was a lifelong bachelor in Invercargill. 
I will leave you with that poignant sentence. <laughs> Imagine that shuffling along on those wide, empty, cold streets, going home alone, possibly playing accordion records by Alan Gardner from Blenheim. <laughs> yeah, would have been, uh, would definitely have been Jack Thompson in that one. Yeah, yeah. He he laid the template. What changed? Oh, uh, I don't think it would have changed around 87. Um, it's just when they stopped sort of printing albums here. But um, I don't know. I mean, when you think these days, uh, I don't think they would... Oh, I suppose there's still a lingering kind of sense that... Is there a lingering sense? Are we behind the rest of the world culturally? Do we still think that? It's kind of true, actually. Let's be honest. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, America and England, uh, because of population and because of better education and because of history, have more writers of genius than we ever have. So I guess we're kind of falling behind in that regard. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, probably not a, it's probably not a thing that we think anymore, though, is it, really? Um, we're almost sort of the opposite. We're kind of belligerent these days. And we're always going, hmm, Lord. You know, so she had one hit fucking five years ago. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, you know, we're always going about, you know, we punch above our weight and all that sort of annoying thing. Um, in a way, I sort of prefer the years of the cultural desert, you know? Uh, we, were, we were coming out with more surprising things. There was more of a sort of a maverick sense of artistry. Um, there's an album there that came up uh, of, a, uh, of a magic mushroom uh, on the cover of an album by a character called Corbin Simpson. He's just a stone-cold musical genius as a composer, a singer, an instrumentalist. And there's, um, there were, like, it was during a time, and I'm talking like the early 70s, I guess, when uh, New Zealand really excelled in a kind of maverick uh, genius. Um, just this past week, one of the things I do... Uh, as, a, as a journalist, is that I edit a, a book section at the news site, newsroom and um, publish something every day about New Zealand books. And in the last week, I devoted the whole week to a new book, uh, a pictorial biography of the great painter Robin White. You know Robin White? And uh, there's a particular sort of section in this book which I found deeply fascinating. It talks about her years in, uh, on the Parramatta coast in Wellington in which he formed a very close-knit uh, uh, artistic scene with various people, including Sam Hunt. And the two of them became really close friends, and they would go on road trips together. If you can sort of remember some of Robin White's famous paintings of Mangaweka, they were made on these road trips at the same time Sam Hunt was developing his very fine and sensitive art as a poet. And this was at the exact same time that people like Corbin Simpson were creating startlingly original works of art. And it was because no one knew them, no one cared about them, they were complete outsiders. And in a way, um, we don't, I don't know, in a way we don't really have outsiders anymore. We're, we're part of the swim of things. We're part of the currency of international life. You know, we're, we've stepped out of the cultural desert. We're in the metropolis of culture. And it's kind of boring, I think. This speech has just occurred to me. You can get the Robin I'll White say, book I'll at say the library. Really. Um, oh, was there another? Do you, you had one, didn't you? Oh, I was just going to ask, sort of partially, do you think in 50 years' time, people in the event like this month looking back at cover design on Spotify records and finding anything pointing Oh, right. Uh, I guess so. I mean, no one would have thought that 50 years ago that there would be any poignancy in the crap that we produced on vinyl, and yet there it is, you know. Um, 
probably it's, it's, it's hard to know how history will turn out while you're living it. You never know how the past will turn out. Um, do you know what happened to the last printing press? Oh, sorry? Do you know what happened to the last printing press? Oh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of an urban myth that they chucked it into Wellington Harbour. Um, I think the reality of it, because there's been a lot of investigations into this, is that parts of it were melted down and used in the, uh, to, to, uh, for roadworks in the Nauranga Gorge in Wellington. <laughs> so tens of thousands of motorists are driving over culture. What a metaphor. Sir? Uh, was John Rolls hard to get hold of? Oh, I, I couldn't get hold of John. Um, I couldn't get hold of John, although he, he, I, I lived in West Auckland for, a number, for most of the time that I was collecting these records, the entire time actually, in, uh, in Te Atatū, Te Atatū North, and John Rolls lived in Te Atatū South. And I did actually run into him twice. Uh, the first time, uh, my daughter, when she was about eight or nine, and a bunch of pals went to the local nail salon and there was John Rolls <laughs> getting his nails done and just looked fantastic. Good on him. It just looked fantastic. But uh, the second time I saw him was in the dairy around the corner and um, that, that was more sort of poignant, really. I, I, I plucked up courage and, and, and said to him when he came out, there was a woman waiting for him sitting on the bonnet of a car and he came out of the dairy and I said, you know, John Rolls, you know, great to meet you. And um, he looked at me and said something like, is it Tuesday? And I thought, well, I think it was Friday. And I said, well, you're close, you know. And, and the woman came and said, oh, come on, John, we, we need to go now. And uh, what I'm trying to say is that I think he had dementia. Uh, he kind of went super quiet around about the time, wasn't he made a knight? I think he was knighted. He won some huge honour, which Winston Peters uh, gave him, because Winston was close to him. And normally, uh, in these sort of investitures, you know, the media all over people, and they would have been all over John Rolls, and there wasn't a peep. And this was like two or three years after that little encounter in a dairy, and I figure the silence was probably speaking to ill health, um, so that was a real shame, love to have, um, I should have talked to him at the nail salon. <laughs> Madam. Yeah, of all the albums in the book, oh that's right, we hold them to have you got a favourite, and if you do, why do you have a favourite? Oh yeah, yeah, in fact it, 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 it came up, um, after I had the, the, the idea at the um, Salvation Army family store uh, to do a book of album covers and therefore I needed to collect. I, I you know, <coughs> hit the internet and, and like spent hours, weeks really, drawing up lists of album covers that looked really striking that I really needed to have. And there was one that, you know, I just was like crazy about. I thought, I've got to get this one. And um, I, uh, I, I found two or three copies of it, uh, actually, one of them in Picton for, um, yeah, like three dollars, I was outraged, <laughs> poor old Max Cryer. Um, one of the boys in this photograph um, went on to become a famous director in Hollywood and more recently became infamously connected as the chap uh, who was slated to direct the unfortunate movie about the mosque attack. Remember that guy? And it all got hushed up. That one! That one! Look at this crazy guy wearing a caftan and strumming a mandolin. I said, oh my God, I've got to get this. It was such a happy day when I found that in Picton. 
I mean, it's for real. You think, oh, this is, it's a joke. It's a parody. It's a satire. But it's absolutely for real. And the album has to be heard to be disbelieved. <laughs> really extraordinary. He, he, uh, he insists on playing every single instrument on it badly, <laughs> uh, including the sitar. Uh, I think the accordion is on it. It's a classic. I didn't have the heart to torture Kim Hill with his... Uh, he, t he does a version of Eleanor Rigby, which I think killed John Lennon. <laughs> Steve, you didn't answer the question. Pardon? You didn't answer the question. Your favourite. Yeah, it would be that one. Oh, that, that one? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, was yeah, your yeah, 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 that one. Yeah, such a shocker. <laughs> I mean, you know, it had so many sort of qualities. You could see that um, he had no idea what he was doing. That could be a subtitle to this book. They have no idea what they are doing. And yet, they are creating something kind of special. I mean, no one has ever seen an album cover like that. Who would dare to do it? It looks ridiculous. Um, and, and yet there's a, you know, the courage that he had to not only put himself on an album cover actually wearing a caftan, but to play every single instrument excruciatingly badly, there's a real nobility in that. I've played that record over and over and over. You must have wonderful neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, we've gone over time, so yes, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. I just wanted to say, I think the only improvement that could be made to this amazing book would be an amazing playlist to go with it. It would be fabulous. The book is satire. It's nostalgia. It's art. It's history. It's cover story. And it's a must for every Kiwi bookshelf. And its author is Steve Braunius. Thank you so much. Kia ora. You can purchase books from the lovely Karen at Paper Plus. Um, I'm sorry here. for talking so much. And Steve will be available to talk more to you while he's box. signing your book. <laughs> but yeah, very happy to sign copies of these uh, collected nightmare visions from the cultural desert out there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well done. Well Thanks done, so you. Thank you. That was Steve Braunius speaking to Tania Miller at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers who have supported the festival, as well as the audiences who attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. Thanks for listening.